I'm so glad to be here, and I'm excited about what the Lord has given me today. Now, first of all, let me say this before I get started. This is not going to be a jump up and shout and run up and down the building and, 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 and bounce over the, the pews. It's not going to be that kind of message because what the Lord gave me was completely different than what I thought he gave me. When I was praying about this, and, and he gave me the scripture to go to, and I, I went to the 22nd chapter of Genesis in the first and second verses, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get to compare uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac to, to God the Father and, and Jesus the Son. No, that's not what happened. I got to, to studying it and got to looking at it, and, and as I began to get into what God wanted to show me, I saw some really deep things in this. <clears throat> and I'm going to ask you before I get started to just kind of say a prayer for me, because I can tell you right from the start, it's a very emotional lesson for me. <clears throat> And I have, I've prayed a lot over this, and I've actually cried a lot over this. But it was something that I know that God wants me to deliver this morning. Somebody, the Lord told me when I was doing this, somebody was going to be here this morning that absolutely needed to hear this. So I don't know who that is, but I do know this, that if it's you, you need to pay attention to what God's trying to tell you that he's on your side, okay? I, like I said, we're going to go to Genesis, the 22nd chapter. And let's go there now. Verse, we'll start with verse 1 and, uh, and verse 2. We'll start with, with those two. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham? And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow. At 11.30 a.m., May the 29th, 1953, the British Broadcasting Corporation, I'm trying to get my handkerchief out, excuse me just a minute. I think I'm going to need it, so I'll get it out in advance. Um, the British Broadcasting System in London made this announcement that Sir Edmund Hillary had successfully scaled to the top of Mount Everest, the highest point on the face of this earth. At 29,002 feet, it's the highest point on the planet. You can't get any higher. It, it, it didn't happen in one day. The climb didn't happen in one day. It didn't happen in a week. As a matter of fact, it didn't happen in a year. They spent five long years of meticulous planning, trying to figure out what was the best route to the top, trying to trying to, to see the way that they wouldn't get up there and get trapped and, and making every, sure that everything was, was just the way it was supposed to be. They spent five long years gathering gear and, and getting the right equipment and, and making sure that they had every tool that they needed to accomplish this task. They spent five long years hiring the right people for support groups. And most importantly of all, they spent five long years of arduous, tough,
tough training. I mean, the oxygen's very short. It, it, it's in short supply at the top of Mount Everest. So they had to learn to expand their lungs. They had to, to learn to, to deal with, with less oxygen. Now, yes, they did have uh, oxygen tanks and that sort of thing, but, but that was just when they got up close to the summit. But on the way up, they had to, to get their bodies ready to climb and, and, and ready to deal with that. But not just their lungs. Their legs had to be strong. Their hands had to be strong. Their arms had to be strong. They went through a lot of training, five years of training, before this announcement was made on May the 29th, 1953. And in that statement, the BBC said this, that no man had ever climbed higher on the face of this earth. And not only that, no man could ever climb higher than Sir Edmund Hillary had just climbed. But I offer it to you this morning, here in Genesis, the 22nd chapter, a much more difficult climb, much more difficult training, much more difficult situation. The man Abraham... Now, Mount Moriah, as far as mountains goes, okay, let's talk about Mount Moriah just for a minute. Mount Moriah is not too much of a mountain. Let me just put it that way. The city of Jerusalem, the elevation of the city of Jerusalem is 2,474 feet, 2,474 feet. The summit of Mount Moriah is 2,500 and 40 feet or something like that. In other words, 154 feet higher than the elevation of the city of Jerusalem. And yet, it's Mount Moriah. They called it a mountain. And if you were in Jerusalem, you might not even know that you were on a mountain if you were standing on the top of Mount Moriah. However, that didn't change the fact that the climb was probably the most difficult climb, with the exception of one, maybe, that had ever been climbed by any man. You know, it's kind of like Mount Moriah in, in Jerusalem. It's kind of like, um, do you know what the meaning of the word Beaumont is? Does anybody know what Beaumont means? Beautiful mountain. That guy must have been standing in a hole when he named that. I don't know. I mean, you know, think about Where's the mountain? But, you know, that's kind of the way these people were in Jerusalem. But God directed Abraham to go to Mount Moriah. He knew exactly where it was, and he went to Mount Moriah. So, I must have gotten on my little note. I'm going to go old school here and go with my notes. So, you, uh, I touched my pads, and it went somewhere that I didn't want to go. So, I'm just going <laughs> to go away. Anyway, Mount Moriah is uh, about... 100 yards, the peak of it's about 100 yards outside the gate of Jerusalem. Now, it's very significant in the fact that it's also known by a couple of other names. Does anybody know what that might be? How about Golgotha? How about Calvary, Mount Calvary? That is Mount Moriah. Mount Calvary and Mount Moriah are the same. And, and isn't it amazing that God instructed Abraham to take his son Isaac and to, to take him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the same site that God the Father sent his son Jesus to be sacrificed once and for all, for all of us. It's an amazing thing. And we're going to see some other amazing things in this today. Um, at least it was amazing to me. 
Now, this was Abraham's, I'm going to call it, this is the name of my, my lesson this morning, is a Moriah moment. Now, you've probably heard this before, a Moriah moment. I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's what the dictionary has to say about it. It's a complete meltdown over something trivial or unimportant. Excuse me. Abraham's Moriah moment was not trivial, and it was not unimportant. It was a, a major thing in his life, maybe the biggest thing that ever happened in his life. So we're going to talk about Moriah moments this morning. That's why I say it's not going to be a, uh, a jump over the altar type thing. It's, these, are, these are times that we all go through, and we all have Moriah moments. But this was Abraham's Moriah moment. Going back to that second verse there, it says, Now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Oh, wait. Did he just say, your only son? That's what he just said. Your only son. But we, you do know, excuse me, that Abraham had another son. And that other son's name was Isaac. Uh, Ishmael, I'm sorry. But it, it's important to note, thank you, Sister Beverly, I appreciate that. It's important to note that Ishmael was a product of the flesh. So it was a mistake. I know Abraham got nervous. I know Sarah got nervous with the promise of God. I understand that. And sometimes I get nervous with the promises of God. You know, God, is this really, am I really supposed to wait on all this? You know, yes. Because we can see right here in this verse, God didn't recognize that. Now, don't get me wrong. God did promise to bless Ishmael. And if you read in, in Genesis, he, he promised a blessing. And he did. He became a great nation. But this was not the son of promise, and God did not recognize him. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, we see Abraham in this, if you read the 22nd chapter of Genesis, we see Abraham's obedience. We see his faithfulness. But we also can see that Isaac was submissive. And, and well, how do we know that? Well, in the first place, we know that Isaac, you know, forget about what you learned in Sunday school for just a moment, okay? Isaac was not a toddler. He wasn't a tod. He wasn't a, a little guy. Uh, some people say that he was probably 14, 15 years old. But if you search Scripture, it appears that he was 33 years old. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Jesus went to the cross when he was 33 years old. So it appears, if you, if you study this all out and you look at it, it appears that Isaac was the same age when he was taken to Mount Moriah as Jesus was when he was taken to Mount Calvary. So that's an interesting thing. So when it, it shows his submission, because, you know, it says that when they got to the top and, and his father put the wood on his back, which I think is another uh, an amazing, not coincidence, but an amazing parallel because uh, what happened with Jesus? They put the cross on his back. So, you know, that. But here's a young man, probably 33 years old. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. If you do the math, that means that he was 133 when they went to Mount Moriah. Uh, just get a picture of this, right? 
here's a 33-year-old man saying, uh, Dad, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, but I don't see the lamb. And, you know, and then and Abraham makes this statement that, you know, don't worry about it, son. God will provide the sacrifice. Okay. But then he should really get suspicious when Abraham starts tying him up. The word says he bound him. Now, I don't know exactly how strong Abraham was, but I'm willing to say that a 33-year-old Isaac could have probably overpowered a 133-year-old Abraham. Just guessing now. I mean, you know, I haven't quite gotten that far yet. I'm 70, but I know my son can, can uh, he, he could take me down pretty easy now. So, uh, and he's in his 40s, so, man, that sounds old. But anyway, that's, that, that's just the way it is. So we not only see the, the faith and the obedience of Abraham, but we see the submission of Isaac, which shows us also the submission of Christ. Jesus didn't need anybody to get him off the cross. As a matter of fact, he told his disciples he could have called a legion of angels. Do you know that he would have only needed one, one angel? Because the angels, they have that much ability and power. He only needed one. If he really wanted to, to call on one, he probably didn't need any. But he could have called a legion. But he was submissive to the Father. The, the word says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Abraham is told by God to take his son to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. Now, there are several places in the Scripture that Abraham is called a friend of God. What? I mean, why would Abraham, if he's a friend of God, why would his friend say, take your son and crucify him or uh, sacrifice him? Why would a friend tell a friend? I mean, you know, you just don't do that. But... We find out why in the first verse. And it said, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. What? A test? You mean God tests us? Yes, he does. Now, uh, what, what's this thing? I mean, you know, uh, this test thing. Well, in the, in the, the verse, the word that's used here is nasah. It means a test or it means a, a trial. Now, this is the very same word that's used by Gideon when, he, when he's talking to God and he's put out the fleece. You remember when Gideon puts out the fleece and, and the, the first part of it is, it says, now let the dew fall on the fleece, but, but let all the ground around it be dry. And then he rang a, a cup of water out of the, the fleece. And then that's not quite enough for him. So he turns around and said, well, let me test thee one more time. Nasah, the very same word. By the way, uh, in Deuteronomy says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Same word, Nasah, can be used as tempt or test. So uh, he might put us to test, but it's not a good idea, I don't think, to put God to a test. You know, I'm not saying don't put out a fleece before the Lord. I'm not going to. Um, but I'm just saying that Deuteronomy says, Do not tempt the Lord thy God. And not only that, but Jesus, when he was in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him, he said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Using the same terminology as Deuteronomy. So anyway, it's a test. And he said, the first thing that I noticed in this was, now it came to pass after these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? 
Now, if you want to look at Sir Edmund Hillary and, and his expedition, they spent five years preparing to, to climb and, and make this ascent uh, of Mount Everest. But when you look at this verse, it says, after these things, when you go back and you look about the things that they're talking about here, it's a matter of 57 years. And it started when God told Abraham, get out of Ur. Said you got to leave this place. Now, does anybody know how old that Abraham was when he left Ur? Anybody have any idea? He was 75. And he told him to get out of his home, that place where he's comfortable, that's where his, his re, uh, residence was, that's where he was, uh, had, had settled down and made everything just the way he wanted it. And, and he was 75 years old, and he told him to get up out of that land. i got something for you to do. Now, by the way, Ur was a, a, a very progressive place. It was uh, probably what we would like to call like the, the Palm Springs of, of the ancient world. You know, you know it's a kind of an interesting trivia thing. It's the first place in the world, in history, ever recorded that had bathtubs. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, that's, it was a cosmopolitan place. You know, it was a fine place to live. And God said, get up and get out of this place. At 75 years old, he tells him to get up and get out of his home. But in faith, Abraham gets up. And he gets his, his family together. He gets, I say family, he gets Sarah. And, and he took uh, his nephew with him, Lot. Now that's the closest thing he had to a son. At this time he didn't have a son. But God made him a promise that he was going to, his descendants would be like the stars in the heaven and the sands of the sea, you know, and the dust of the earth. It would be that numerous. He made him this promise, but as yet it hadn't happened. He's 75 years old. He's really not expecting it right now. But in faith, he got up at 75 years old and left where he was living comfortably. Now, on the way out, and as they're going through Egypt, uh, you remember what happened? Uh, he goes, they go through Egypt, and, and evidently his wife is a very beautiful woman. Sarah was, was a, an exceptional um, uh, looker, you know. Because I think this is very uh, it's significant. She's 65 years old when they get to Egypt. And he's so afraid that he's going to be killed because they want her as, as one of their wives that he said, now you just tell them that you're my sister. She's 65 years old, but she's still beautiful enough that he's afraid that he's going to get killed for her. And so anyway, the Egyptians, they take her and they, they want to make her uh, their wives. And, of course, you know, God shows them that, no, you, you can't do that. She's already married. She belongs to Abraham. And, and so here's something else he's got to go through. Now, he's, he's 75 years old at the time he goes through this because this happened pretty much immediately. After he gets out of his comfortable home, he gets up and he goes to this place and they want to take his wife away from him. Then he had to separate Lot from his family. You remember they're, they're, they went out there and their, their, their um, flocks were too big for the land to, to take care of all of them. So he said, listen, let's just not have any family problems. Let's just separate. You go that way and I'll go this way. And, and he gave Lot his choice. And what did he choose? He chose what looked wonderful and green and good. And, and he, he went toward the, the, the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and uh, Abraham said, okay, that's fine. This over here is what I'll take. In faith, he still believed God had something good for him. And he moved in that direction. So and after a period of time, Lot was, was uh, kidnapped from Sodom. So guess what? Abraham picks up his, his stuff and he gets all of his entourage. And they go out and they rescue them. 
And then the king of Sodom says, you take all the spoil. You can be a rich man, Abraham. And you know what Abraham did? He refused any of it. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you. If you read it, it says something about uh, a wooden, uh, I'm wooden, uh, a leather lace that they lace their sandals with. He said, I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you. And you know why he said that? He said, because I don't want anyone saying that the king of Sodom made me a rich man. God made me a rich man. And, and when we get to the point, then we don't get ahead of God. When, you know, you go through these Moriah moments. This was a Moriah moment for him as well. Only it wasn't near what he was looking at later. And, and so he learned in faith that God was the one that was, was his provider. That he was his strength. So this was about, um, oh, I don't even, oh, I see what, where I'm going. I see this number, and I was thinking, okay. Um, this is where that, that uh, God said that he was going to make his seed after he rescued Lot as, as the stars in the heavens. Now, you see, it already said as the dust of the earth. And a lot of Bible, early Bible scholars thought that he was reducing his promise to Abraham because... When you think about the sands of the sea, there are many more grains of sand than there were stars in the heaven that you could see. At that time, when this was all written and, and people began to study all this, about all you could see in the heavens was about 6,000 stars on a clear night. And, and, and I've read someplace that, that even in America you can't see that because there's such light pollution that we don't, we don't have that kind of vision. But in a place where there's no light pollution, the best you can do with the naked eye is about 6,000 stars. But did you know that with the invention of, of the modern telescopes and electronic telescopes and all the things that we have now, that we've discovered that there are about uh, 10 to the 25 power stars out there in the galaxies and different things. And so when the scientists got to figuring this all up, you know what they discovered? that all the sands of the earth, the grains of the sands, there was about 10 to the 25 power grains of sand on this earth. Now, coincidence, right? No, it's not coincidence. God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. God knew then, even when we could only see 6,000 stars, God knew there was a lot of them out there. So his descendants were going to be innumerable, in other words. So anyway... Uh, when Sarah was uh, 76 years old, she began to despair. She's, you know, this is never going to happen. All these descendants are never going to come from us. So she told Abraham to, to take Hagar, her uh, maidservant, and that have, a, have a, a, a son with her, and, and this would be where all the descendants came from. Of course, we know that he did that. Uh, Ishmael was born when uh, Abraham was 86 years old, and... Abraham made the statement. He said, Oh God, that Ishmael would live before you. Well, he was just, you know, and God said, No. He is not the son of promise. You know, no matter how hard we try to help God out, if we're not in the will of God, it's not really helping. And and you know what? That's the, the hay and the stubble that's going to burn up whenever we stand before the Lord. Those things that we've done in our own strength, those th things that we've done out of the will of God, those things that we've stepped out 
in front of God and tried to make it work, no matter how good they look to us now, that's going to be the wood, hay, and stubble that's going to burn up before the throne. But for our works to be the kind of works that God is going to recognize, they have to be in His time and they have to be in His will, as was Isaac. At uh, 99 years old, and God reestablished his covenant with him, by the way. And in 99 years old, he um, had another child. This child's name was Isaac. At 99 years old, he reestablished a covenant, and he was circumcised at 99 years old in his whole household. I don't even want to talk about it. don't want to think about it. Just say it, okay? <laughs> at 99 years old. Come on. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was probably 90. And anyway, when, when, they made, when there were three uh, emissaries of God that came to Abraham's house uh, about the time of this circumcision event for all the uh, adults and, and made reestablished the, the promise with Abraham and told him that he would have a son, but he would have a son by uh, Sarah. And Sarah was standing just outside, and you know what she did? She laughed. She did. Yeah, right, okay. And it, and it was apparently kind of on the sly because one of these emissaries of God, angel or whatever you want to call it, said, uh, um, excuse me, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. <laughs> oh, yes, you did. You laughed. And so uh, because of that, uh, that and other things, the name uh, Isaac actually means laughter. So you can just take that as just a little trivial thing there. So... He was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And when he was weaned, which was probably three or four years old in, in those days, they had this great feast and party. And this was a big coming out party, so to speak, was when he was weaned. And Sarah saw Ishmael mocking her son Isaac. And that was it. She said, no more. He's out of here. Now, what's important here? It's not the fact that she told him to leave or told Abraham to make him leave. But you think about this. He's 14 years old at this time. Isaiah, uh, Ishmael, rather. He's 14 years old. He'd been around Abraham 14 years. I would be willing to say because he was Abraham's son, he loved him very much. But God told him, he said, you listen to your wife and you send him away because he's not the son of promise. And sometimes we have to make difficult decisions in our lives to stay in the will of God. The decision to send Ishmael away was not easy for Abraham because he'd already prayed, Oh God, that Ishmael would live before thee, O Lord. But no matter how much we want it, if it's not the will of God... It's not supposed to be in our life. Now, this is a hard thing. We're, we're talking about things that are not easy in our lives today. But don't we all have those things? Don't we all have places we don't want to go? After these things, it says, that God tested Abraham. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that bring a question to your mind? What Doesn't the Bible say something about that, that, that God doesn't test any man or tempt any man? No, it doesn't say that he doesn't test them. 
what it says is in James, the first chapter, if you'd like to turn there. James chapter 1, verse 13. And let's be very clear on this. In the Greek, the word tempt and test is the very same word. It makes no differentiation between tempt and test. So you have to take it in context. And that's what we're trying to do this morning. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. There's the key. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, he doesn't tempt anybody with evil, but from time to time he does test people. And, and it's just like whenever we go to school, or when I was going to school, and even our kids now, they're going to school. You send them to the first grade. Well, they don't just go to the second grade just because, they, you know, somebody says, okay, it's time for you to go to second grade. What happens? They have to test. You know, you go through a, a section. Uh, let's just say that you're in, in grammar school and you do a, a, a I don't know, a, a, a test on social studies maybe. You, you do a segment on social studies. And to make sure that you know enough about the social studies to go forward, what happens? You get a test. Yeah. And the teacher is supposed to prepare you for that test. Now, the ones that really got me is when you walked in the classroom, the teacher said, put everything away. This is a pop quiz. Do you know that God gives pop quizzes? He does. He gives pop quizzes. Sometimes you're not, you know, you're not expecting it, but he's always prepared you for it. Now, the devil's the one that loves the pop quizzes. Because, see, anytime there's an event in your life that's a test, there's two sides of it. The test is God wanting you to pass. Because He wants you to pass. He wants you to increase. He wants you to be better. He wants you to learn more. He wants you to grow and be stronger. He wants you to increase. Whereas the devil wants you to fail every single time. He wants to crush you. He wants to destroy you. What's the Scripture say about him? He comes for what? That's it. That's all he comes for. He wants you to fail every single time. But God wants you to pass. It's God's desire that you never fail a test. Now, guess what? I failed a few tests. You know, I, I didn't fail many tests in school. Very few tests that I ever fail. But if I fail one, did I quit? Came back the next day and started over, you know? And that's what we have to do. And, and that's what God wants us to do. If you fail... And sometimes we do because we're humanity. We have that, that human quality about us. Sometimes the, the truth is we fail. So you come back the next day and you, and you start again. You know, and, and God will never put anyone to a test without complete preparation. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, and you're all familiar with this one, says, no temptation has overtaken you such except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that's his side of it. He wants to give you that escape. He wants to give you that, that ability to pass. He wants to give you that ability to grow stronger and get better, but not the devil. And because of this, there are some folks that are absolutely terrified of commitment to God. I mean, their, their thought is, wait a minute. 
if I'm going to have to take a test, you know, have to go through tests and trials, and, you know, I don't know that I really want to do that. I mean, you know, there's people that, that are totally terrified of serving God because they're afraid that God's going to put them to a test. i got news for you. You're going to get tests no matter whether you serve God or not. Well, the Scripture says that man's days are short and full of trouble. And that doesn't make any difference whether you're saved and, and been saved all of your life, whether you, you just got saved or whether you don't know God at all. Man's days are short and they're full of trouble. So there's always going to be tests. You know, I feel like when God prepares us for a test, He always gives us a firm, firm foundation. Now, I feel like my life is blessed, and I'm just going to use me because I can talk about me, and I don't have to, uh, I don't have to point fingers at anybody but me. I feel like my life is blessed, and I've felt that way for many years. And my confidence in a blessed life is not by accident. It's come through a lot of tests. You know, I can remember, he gave me a firm foundation, God did. Uh, you know, I can remember uh, my first memories uh, or of sleeping on a church pew. And my mom, who I'm privileged to have with me here now, uh, she was, I can remember this one time in particular, she was preaching a revival in a little place called Argo, Texas. And I was, I was sleeping on the pews. I'm, I mean, you know, I can remember this as my earliest memories. She would preach and I would sleep, you know. And, and of course, I didn't sleep all the time, but that's how young I, I was. I, I grew up on the church pew. I, you know, I, I was in church... Uh, every time the doors were open, I, I was in Sunday school. I, I grew up teaching Sunday school. One of my the memories that sticks with me the most, I can remember playing outside the window where my mom's bedroom was, and I remember hearing her pray. And I would go and, and play right there by that window where I could hear her pray because it made me feel... <clears throat> It made me feel safe. It made me feel like that somebody was building a hedge of protection around me. And in growing up this way, I was given a firm foundation. Did I pass every test that God brought along for me? No, I didn't. I didn't. I promise you I didn't. And, and most likely you won't either. But that doesn't mean that that's the end of it. All it means is we just have a little more work to do. God tested Abraham 57 years before his Moriah moment arrived. You know, <clears throat> I told you this was a, <clears throat> a very emotional lesson for me. Um... There was a time in my life that I thought my testimony was totally unimpressive. Been in church all my life, never been in trouble. God didn't have to deliver me from jail. Never had to deliver me from alcoholism. Never had to deliver me from drug addiction. My, my testimony was completely vanilla. You know, that was my, the feeling that I had. You know, of course, as a young guy, I didn't know any better. But I look at my testimony now, and I see the things that I've come through since those years. And I see 
a broken home. I see health issues that I never dreamed that I was going to deal with. And I see God's mercy in all of it. You know, and, and I know there's somebody here today that feels like you're going through a Mariah moment. I know that. But I want you to understand that it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because He loves you so very much. He wants you to survive, but He wants you to thrive too. What kind of life is it when we say, well, we're just preparing to overcome the next Mariah moment? Well, it, and why would I want to go down that path? Well, there's actually three reasons why that we should want to go down that path uh, to... Uh, to be prepared for the next Mariah moment. Number one is, is completion. And James had this to say about completion in the first chapter of James, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. He said, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, produces patience. But let patience have its perfect, mature work, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking nothing. Well, Okay, what makes us complete? Paul said in several places in the New Testament there were actually three things that made us a complete person. There were faith, hope, and King James Version says charity. Most other uh, versions says love. So if, if we look at, at Abraham, was he a complete person? Well, he began to exhibit faith right off when God called him. Seventy-five years old, he began to exhibit faith. He, he followed faith uh, all the way through all these... Uh, 57 years that, that God was testing him and, 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 you know, it was one tester after another. And all these things that happened to Abraham, they were just one moment after another. But he kept getting stronger. He kept getting stronger. He kept getting stronger. And he, and he passed his test. So he's about to come to his supreme test, that Mariah moment. So what about the hope part? Well, he consistently hoped. What is hope? Let me, let's just say, what, what is hope? Well, it's the confident expectation of something good. Now, listen. He's already had to send away the 14-year-old son that he's had, and he's got this brand-new son. He's four years old. This is the one that God said, I'm going to make from this son, I'm going to make you uh, your inheritance as the dust of the earth. Now, he, you know, this has to be kind of a tough thing for him to really believe in his heart, but he's hoping. And I don't mean just, well, I hope. He means that, that he's expecting through this son for God's promise to be brought to his life. And that's what happened. And then we see love. You know, it looks, we know that he had love. And, and the reason that we know that he had love is because in verse 2 here, it says, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love. Do you know that this is the first time that the Bible ever talks about love? The first time the word love is ever mentioned in the Scriptures in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Isn't that interesting that it took 22 chapters for the word love to even show up in the Bible? And isn't it interesting that it's the love of a father for a son? Which tells me something. He wants us to know how important and how much He loved His Son that He sent to the cross. John 3.16 says, 
For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And I believe in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, He's revealing to us a love that's very special to God. And in, re- in the regard to that, He's also telling us when we go all the way over, the way over to John 3.16, For God so loved me and you that He sent that special loved Son to the cross. I, I just, I'm blown away by it. I really am. Completion, number one. Second reason we should want to go down this path is, you'll have to forgive me here. Uh, I, this is a C word, so I'm trying to stay with the C word. Contemplation. I'm not as good as Pastor Sam at, at, at keeping it that way, but contemplation. Um, basically, we need to think about this. I thought it was interesting that God asked Abraham to do this. Why did he ask him to do it? Because he wanted Abraham to help teach the world about the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. It wasn't about Abraham. It wasn't about Isaac. It was about the rest of the world. And he wanted to be sure that we got this, we got this information. Our, our greatest roadblock, I think, as humanity is that we don't quite get it. What's the first line in the book that Rick Warren wrote when he said, The Purpose Driven Life? What's the first line? It's not about you. Exactly. News bulletin, I'm sorry to, to announce this to you, but, you know, God does not exist for you. You exist for God. And I can prove that by Scripture. In Colossians it says, first, first chapter, 16th verse, last part of that 16th verse, it says, all things were created through Him and for Him. It's not about you, it's for God. He created us because He wanted to have fellowship with us. He created, listen, He blesses us, I get that. And, and, and I live a blessed life and I'm so grateful for it and thankful for it. But I don't, he, He's not there that I can say, Lord, bless my home, bless my life, bless my wife, bless my kids, bless my finances, oh Lord, bless my car, bless my dog or my cat. He's not there for that. We're there because He wants to have fellowship with us. We were created for Him, not vice versa. And when we can get that, you know, in the full impact of what it really means, then we can understand why that we, sometimes we go through trials and why that, you know, well, why if God is, you know, if he, he wants to bless me so much, am I going through this? Well, He does want to bless you so much, but He's also giving you a, a chance to grow a little bit too. So He also says in, in, in Revelation, the fourth chapter, where they're, the, they're singing, the angels are singing, and said, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. You created all things, and you created what you pleased. The third thing is communion. Give me just a few minutes here. We're almost done. We need to learn the value of of fellowship. You know, Abraham was called a friend of God, and... and, uh, we have friends, and, it, and I love to laugh. I love to have fun. I love to, you know, to get together and, and have a good time. But you know, the real friends, 
they're the ones that you share the deep things with. You know, they're the ones that you go to when when you've got a Mariah moment going on in your life, and and, and you say, "Hey, listen, I, I need to share this with you, and I need you to pray with me." They're the ones that you really get close in the fellowship. You know, I'm gonna get up just a second here. I was thinking about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And by the way, that's not their Hebrew names. That's their Babylonian names. But that's the way we know them. We're familiar with that. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace because it was a test. You know, they were being tested. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar comes up and he looks into the furnace and, and he says, no, wait a minute. How many did we put in the furnace? And one of his advisors says, well, we put three in there, Lord. And he said, well, I see four in there and they're walking around. And he said, one of them appears to be as the, as the son of God. Now, I, just, I had this thought. That they're walking around in the fire, right? And, and it says that, that they didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes or anything. And the only thing that burned on them was the ropes that they had them bound with when they threw them in. The ropes burned off. That's all they had. And they're walking around in the fire. And I had this thought. You know, they're walking around. They're, they're unharmed. They could have walked out of the fire anytime they got ready. Yeah, they could have walked out of the fire. And, and trust me, if they'd have walked out of the fire because the people who threw them in actually died, the fire was so hot. And so if they'd have walked out of the fire, wasn't anybody going to try to shove them back in. They could have walked out any time they got ready. I can just think about, you, know, you have to, this is my, my imagination running away sometime. You know, let's just say that, uh, that Meshach says, hey, Shadrach says, why don't we just walk out there and just scare the royal socks off of Nebuchadnezzar, you know? And, and, you know, they kind of have a laugh about it and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and maybe one of them says, no, no, let's don't do that. Because this is the first time that we've ever been in the presence of God and been this close to Him. Let's just stay in the fire. Because that's where you're going to meet God is when you're in the fire. That's when you're going to get close to God is when you're in the fire. Listen, when times are good... We just have a good time. We go on. We may shout hallelujah every now and then. But when you're in the fire, brother, that's when you hit your knees and that's when you start talking. And that's when you find that, that relationship that you need to have with the Father. And you get close to Him then. You know, and you come out on the other side. And, and you know, I thought it a number of times. Lord, that really, I mean, that was good for me. I hated it, but it was good for me. You know, and I can just imagine when they threw him into the fire, it was kind of like, ha ah, ha, ah, this is not so bad, you know. And and that's kind of the way I feel sometimes when I, I go into my Mariah moment, you know. Eh, this is not so bad, you know, God's with me. You know, Scripture says that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. Because that's where the relationship is, is in the fire. This is where it gets hard. The Lord spoke to me while I was doing this. And He said, Jim, what gives me the most glory? You've been able to stand up before a crowd of people 
and saying, you know, God has blessed me so much, I've never had any problems my whole life. You know, God has just taken care of me. I've just smoothed and sailed right on through life. Or, I was diagnosed with cancer, and yet I live. That's what gives God the glory. God doesn't get the glory out of somebody that skips by everything. God gets the glory when we come out on the other side, when we walk out of the fiery furnace and we don't even smell like smoke. That's when God gets the glory. So why would we want a Mariah moment? Because God wants to do it that way. I want to please God. And I know somebody here is facing or going through a Mariah moment right now. It's the toughest thing I've ever done. But God has already prepared you and He wants you to know that there's victory in it. That in the moment there's victory. There's victory in the moment. You come out the other side and you're stronger and you've grown. You're closer to God than you've ever been in your life. And that's the way it was with my cancer. I'm closer to God than I've ever been in my life. And that's what gives God the most glory. So this morning, if you would, I'd like for you to stand with me. If you're facing a Mariah moment, I don't want you to fear it. I don't want you to dread it. And I don't want you to think failure because God don't want you to fail at all. God wants success for you and your family. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I just declare that our Mariah moments draw us into closer fellowship. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we're here today. Lord, learning about how that you love us so much, Lord, that you want us to be tested in order that we might grow that we might get closer to you, that we might find ourselves, Lord, in a relationship that's unbreakable, unshakable, immovable. And Father, we want to give you praise today, Lord. As we're standing here and we got our heads bowed and our, our hands lifted up, I wonder if there is there somebody that's going through a Mariah moment right now. Just lift your hand. Yeah. Yeah, I see those hands. I see those hands. Trust me, but more than that, trust God, okay? Your Mariah moment is but a growth step. It's just one step closer to Him. I'm going to pray for you right now. And I'm going to believe that we can trust God. And if you want to have prayer for this, when we dismiss, I want you to come on up front and we'll pray for you. Father, I thank you so, so much, Lord, that you love us so much that even though we're walking through a moment that we don't know how in the world we're going to do it, that we know we're going to come out on the other side and we're not even going to smell like smoke because, Lord, it's the fellowship with you that counts more than anything else. It's the fellowship with you, Lord, that brings us to the point that we can understand it's not about this world. 
It's about the one to come. And right now, Father, I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust you, Lord, that the moments in these people's lives Lord, are but a step forward to greatness and glory. Lord, in your kingdom, it only counts in your kingdom, Lord, and I give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen.